Hello, hello. Welcome to the First Gen Realness Podcast. I'm your host, Anandyai Conte. I'm an entrepreneur, financial advisor, wife, and mother. I'm on a mission to help more women of color build generational wealth and change the dynamics of our society. If you're all about shaking up the status quo, leaving generational curses behind, and you love a dose of real talk, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. All right. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Uh, all right. So everybody, you are in for a very exciting episode of the First Gen Realness podcast today. I have one of my dear, dear friends, uh, Matt Cooper, joining us today. And in addition to being one of my very, very most cool friends, Matt is also an incredible entrepreneur, innovator, all the things. So I'm going to let him tell you about that. But um, I would just introduce him. So Matt is a writer and entrepreneur. He facilitates the Innovation from the Inside Intensive at Yale University's Thai City and hosts the original podcast live from tomorrow, IBM Blockchain Pulse and Forwards and Backwards in Oral History of Quantum Computing. So prior to all this, he was the first vice president of Open Innovation at the Barclays Investment Bank, where he launched Rise New York, the model for Barclays Global Innovation Programs. He was also the entrepreneur in residence at WeWork Lab. So safe to say, Matt knows his stuff about entrepreneurship, having done it himself, and then also advise people. So I'm super, super excited to have him here. And also because he's my homie and any chance I get to hang with my homies, it's good. So Matt, welcome. Thank you, Anna. I feel welcome. Hello, everybody. So let's just start off by telling us a bit about you, um, you know, not the standard bio stuff, the, the real, the real juicy stuff. <laughs> yeah, the juicy stuff. Well, yeah, I think you hit on something there. You know, it's weird to hear someone like read your career back to you sometimes because you're like, oh, yeah, that, 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 that makes sense. That didn't make sense. I didn't like that. Um, but I think that the intersection of creativity and entrepreneurship has been where I've based my entire career for the last 10 years. It's, it's a passion that is equally for media and creative problem solving media. And obviously, you, you know this from shows like this, uh, because it's a way to create a conversation with your customer, with your user, with your consumer. Like the, you can be in their lives via video or audio or live events in a different way. Um, but I started right out of school uh, with an iOS development firm, essentially was what the first company I had was. And when that was not only not successful, it made me reconsider ever wanting to be an entrepreneur ever again. And I got into grad school and I was going to sort of change my entire life and career. The gentleman I ended up working for said to me, it might be better for you not to go to school, but rather to stay in this ecosystem and sort of apprentice and learn a little more. I, of course, felt like my entire career was over. I was 24, so I thought I was old. And, uh, and this guy just basically gave me a chance working for him as like the entrepreneur in residence at his product studio. And that, and that is basically how I spent the first five years of my career on the product side, on digital product side. And then in 2015, I ended up um, working essentially pro bono as the managing director of a program that I, I sorely missed called Startup Next, which was bought by Techstars. But it, it launched as sort of a pre-accelerator for like really early stage companies, maybe some of your listeners or founders, some of your listeners, sorry, are founders who, uh, you know, aren't sure if they want to raise a lot of venture yet, aren't sure that they have that kind of scalable business. And this was an accelerator that focused on that early stage entrepreneur. And 
and running that for two cohorts, that made me realize that what I actually like to do is sort of work with founders and, and to some extent with executives to help them solve all the problems that I wish folks had helped me solve in my first business. It was like a very sort of full circle kind of moment for me. Uh, and then that led me to uh, to uh, a few years at, at Barclays, which was the first major institution I'd worked with of its kind. And I've kind of been in that institutional space since then. So for all of my startup cred, uh, as you mentioned, Anna, I've actually been working an awful lot with institutions trying to solve this really big problem, which is how do startup Davids work with corporate Goliaths? And why that matters is, you, you know, these big companies have a very strange an unprecedented role to play in society. Um, and so I've had clients like IBM and Google for the last four years in my own business, which is more institutional work. And as you mentioned, I, I facilitate an intensive at Yale, which is obviously a very big institution. Um, and so when I would look at the last 10 years in kind of those three phases, I wanted to be a founder, I got to be a founder, and then I can now help connect founders to large institutions, which I think is gonna be the next, you know, 10, 20 years of, of innovation, mm -hmm. because when executed correctly, a corporate innovation strategy, particularly a corporate open innovation strategy, which, which we can speak about soon, enables real change. Um, and so like sort of in conclusion on that little, and I apologize for the monologue there to all, all your <laughs> listeners who have already pressed stop. I think that I just want to be very clear that I, I am skeptical of corporate power and influence. Like, I don't come by this thinking that this is that this is the way things should be. I'm acknowledging that this is the way things are. And I just want to kind of make that clear. Like I recognize that it is unusual that in 2017, uh, Walmart generated more revenue than Belgium. Like I'm aware that that's odd. That's nuts. <laughs> that is nuts. Like a whole ass country. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and I, and I know that that's weird. And so I, but 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 there's a. I guess I'll sort of close out with this, which which is in the first day of our of our semester, this this spring semester up, up at Yale, the sort of topic sentence I wrote was like we, the insurrection obviously just happened. It was mid January, and I said, trust in major institutions is at an all time low, and we have a very international uh, uh, group. Uh, like all of our students are coming from all around the world. There are about 90 something faces on a Zoom call and all of them nodded. Like there was no one that disagreed with that. Yeah. They were like, yep, we're in trouble. Yeah. And so I also think that one of the reasons that innovation with big institutions makes sense and is sort of exciting is we have now reached something of a cultural consensus that change is required. Yeah. And these big, big institutions can't be like um, roadblocks anymore. They need to be kind of reformed and updated and, yeah. uh, and, and made flexible for the needs that we all now have in the third decade of the 21st century. Totally. Um, okay, so there's so many things I wanna talk about there, but, because um, I'm a firm, I think the last year has shown us, and I, frankly, since 2016 has really shown us, there's a lot of broken shit <laughs> around yeah, here. Yeah. Like, like, ju like Just in our backyard too, yeah. like just around the corner. Literally, yeah. everything is broken. Uh, and I, I think what wasn't um, made clear in 2016 in those first four years, uh, those last four years, and then also with COVID really showed us that so much of the way the global system, but specifically the U.S. system, just is not set up to yeah. work well with our reality as humans, right? And to allow us to, you know, thrive and live 
decent quality lives, right? Um, and, I, you know, it, it's, I personally feel like that it has to be multifaceted in, in the ways that we kind of shift that, the, the dynamics and the paradigms that we have right now. But I really do feel as though business has a huge, huge role to play in that, right? Because obviously governments have to set policy and there's all these international organizations that set policies that to coordinate between countries, right? But even within our own borders, the government doesn't run everything, right? Like I, Apple and Amazon run a whole lot more than like the government of Delaware, right? So yeah. uh, um, I think it's really important for them to play a role. The, the skeptic in me, the cynic in me feels like they're not going to do that because they don't necessarily have a vested interest in that. Or they, even if there is buy-in there, there's too much of a conflict of interest in order to change that. But, but maybe, maybe you're seeing things a little bit differently because you're actually working in that world. I, I personally feel like it's the little man that has to like, you know, revolt. Uh, and that's my, that's my battle. I, I, don't, I don't know that I see it. It's funny. You said, I don't know that I see it differently. I think sort of two things. Cause like when I was talking about my own bio before, you know, a few minutes ago, what I was thinking was like, let me skip through some of this because I think that, how do I put this? Like, because I came from a world of startup entrepreneurship, mm -hmm. specifically tech entrepreneurship, yeah. I do carry with me a little bit of resentment around the way that some leaders in my own ecosystem and the, you know, the career that, that so many of my peers and I chose, uh, they don't acknowledge these things. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know that the story is all that different from what you're saying. I think the advantage, however, of being an entrepreneur is that you're trained to think about solutions rather than rant about problems. Yeah. So like once the problem is identified, you can start to think of a solution. But what drives me the craziest actually is not, and this is a completely sort of ridiculously selfish and spoiled thing I'm aware of, but what drives me crazy is not learning about tragedy. It's watching people get mad about tragedy on Twitter and doing nothing. <laughs> like, like, Yo, like Matt, <laughs> Matt, you're about to set me off right now because yeah, sorry. Okay. I, I have been having... I mean, there's the individual people that like get mad and tweet, rage tweet, right? Like those those people are kind of weird guys to quote Donald Trump, which I never do. Like they're weird guys in their mom's basement, right? Like I'm not worried about them, but the people that really make me angry are the corporations and the big interests that talk a good game specifically around economic, racial, social justice, and sure. then it's crickets. Or I, I recently had an example, I won't disclose who, but very large financial institution asked me to speak at their diversity summit and share my experience as a black woman financial advisor. And then, and they said they really are committed to diversifying the industry, right? They put out all the press releases, they hire a fancy consulting firm, and then they offer zero compensation for a speaking engagement. I'm like, yeah. do you not, like I, I, if I were less reserved. I would put y'all on blast all over the place. Right. But, yeah. but I'm not going to do that. But it just, I see it time and time again. And that really is what makes my blood boil and makes me really want to throw them all in the garbage and start over. Cause it feels like totally. trash. <laughs> so this is a little plug for something I've been thinking about a lot, which is the concept. I, I first learned of it as a pejorative and then I've sort of weirdly um, gotten more involved in the idea of innovation theater, mm -hmm. that a big, big, big company can sort of pretend, you know, they can invest in a in startup accelerator, they can build an exciting office mm -hmm. space, they can, two of which are things that we actually did at Barclays that were very effective, by the way, it was not mm -hmm. theater, but I've seen other institutions try the sort of performance of like, we're, we're getting with the times, we're getting yeah. hip, we're starting yeah. new. And my biggest fear about things like DNI and the sort of fight for gender equity and, um, 
even the argument over mental health and paid leave are like big, like I think you're onto something where when handled incorrectly, there will be more tools for the innovation theater toolkit, mm -hmm. as opposed to things that can be properly implemented and integrated into a, into a corporate structure. Yeah. Like it's really, one of the things that was most exciting for me last summer was that the reparations conversation was on the table, but it was on the table for like seven minutes. Yeah. You know what I mean? And <laughs> exactly. so, I felt sort of like an idiot when it sort of got off the table again because I thought, well, this that's an issue where I actually believe so strongly in in the United States, uh, specifically speaking about living in the United States and offering reparations for the descendants of enslaved Americans, right? Yeah, enslaved people. That that's something that I, I for me it's a no brainer, but it's a political non starter, and so yeah. it felt that corporate influence might be able to move that conversation forward in the wake of the murders of, of George Floyd and and, and and Breonna Taylor and so many others. And of course it was gone. I mean, I guess that was like a June conversation. By the end of July, it was gone. So I, I remember yeah. thinking like, okay, maybe the, the other real risk we run in institutions um, is performative uh, empathy, performative innovation, right? Mm -hmm. So when you say you wanna put someone on blast, like sometimes that's a good idea, yeah. but maybe the better thing to do, and I don't know, but if yeah. you, I feel better doing it is actually helping to whether by consulting, by mentoring, by directly producing, mm -hmm. uh, helping to shift the narrative, helping to tell a better story for that corporation. Yeah. No one, no one in the C-suite wants to be seen as bigoted or anti-science or, I mean, these aren't things yeah. people want to be known for. Um, or if they do, like they're frequently, and I'm being serious, like running for office. I mean, I've seen yeah. that the, the level of, like the people who feel cool about being disgusting don't seem to uh, function very well in corporate America, which is yeah. actually a good thing. Yeah. Um, however, like, I think you got it something a minute ago, which is what do we do past shame? Like what, what can yeah. actually change past shame? And I don't know that we have an answer to that yet because we're, we're essentially talking about two different problems that previous generations didn't have to talk about in the same way. One is all the business challenges that I feel very comfortable talking about day mm -hmm. in, day out. Yeah. And the other are the cultural challenges that I'm less comfortable speaking about because I, they almost mean more to me. Yeah. Like, they're, like they're things that I think are just, that are just much more important. Yeah. Um, and, and there isn't always someone willing to have that conversation with you. But totally. I like, I know, for example, that the fact that I just said I'm in favor of reparations in the U S is, is a, is something that closes off many people. Like that yeah. is instantly a position mm -hmm. that will alienate me from many people. However, it's something I believe in. It's sort of like the way I believe that everyone should wear a mask last year. At the, yeah. At the yeah. It's like something I, I think is a no brainer. Yeah. And, and it's weird that institutionally we haven't all gotten on board with that. So I understand the sort of frustration you felt mm -hmm. that you were like, well, maybe I'll just put this guy on, this team on blast. Maybe that's yeah. what I'll do. Yeah. What, yeah. what other tools do I have? Yeah, totally. And, uh, and so, so yeah, it's, it's, it's complicated because we started this whole conversation with like, you know, the stuff on Twitter pisses me off, yeah. but at the same time, you're right. It's like, well, what else are you going to do? Like if someone yeah. doesn't pay you, yeah, maybe you should embarrass them. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, no, totally. I, um, you know, I think I'm very mindful of, you know, recognizing that it's not, it's, it's always a good idea to speak your mind, right. And to clearly articulate what you think is right and what you think is wrong. I think that that that's an individual responsibility that needs to be done. And I think if we collectively are moving in the right direction, knock on wood, then, you know, corporations, government, large institutions will respond in kind, which I think we're starting to see. 
I, as a, as a black Latina woman though, I'm like, this ain't my mess, right? I'm not out here discriminating against people. So I'm not here to fix it, right? If you want to make things good, then, you know, help me out somehow. Like I, I can speak my mind and I'm very vocal on how I feel about a lot of issues, but um, you know, there's, there's a mess that is not necessarily mine to clean up. And if you want me to help clean up, then you go run me my check. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's interesting you say that because I think, so I think that's one, there, I think there are a lot of people who feel like it's not their mess. One of the, I know the themes of obviously being on this show is being sort of a first generation American. Yeah. Um, my dad is a white, straight, cisgendered man who is not American yeah. and refuses American citizenship just it's not his mess i mean that is actually he, he an still, argument like wait he still has not gotten american citizenship no he has not that's so funny <laughs> and so anytime there's like a contentious moment between he and i about the power of the vote yeah doesn't matter like it's like that's where the conversation ends yeah and it for when i was younger it was extremely frustrating to me i mean really frustrating because it was like this is the only thing you could do in this yeah. in this democracy at least yeah. right the only thing you could do is, 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 is express yourself at the ballot box. And I, and so that was a confusing thing, but I, I think some people actually do have that view, yeah. which is like, you know, for him moving to America in the middle of the 20th century at the height of the civil rights movement, it's on the one hand inspiring and on the other, it's, you know, as he described it in his high school, there were just countless race riots and people afraid of uh, integrated busing and all sorts of stuff that was completely alienating and confusing and, and taught him and many of his neighbors, as he would describe, had sort of hate in their hearts that he could never forget or forgive. And I think the very complicated thing for every business owner, entrepreneur, business, you know, whoever, the, the audience for this show and so many of the folks that I have managed to kind of professionally come of age with is to hold all of these opposing ideas in mind yeah. and still try to make a difference. Like, I, I will say that love my dad more than anything. I think he's making a mistake. Mm -hmm. Like I actually have an opinion on this. I think he should become a senator and he should vote. Yeah. Uh, but it's really hard when I also completely understand his point of view. I get it. Yeah. And when you just yeah. say it's not my mess, like it really isn't. It yeah. really isn't. And, and yeah. then on my, my mom's side, I'm, I'm third generation. So if you look at my family story, which is largely sort of the Ashkenazi Jewish immigrant experience, America was like a safe haven when yeah. the rest of the world locked down, mm -hmm. we don't have roots here in the same yeah. way. Yeah. So you can make that argument. And I've seen that a lot of sort of um, more progressive circles, particularly progressive Jewish American circles lately, which is like, we have complicated feelings about Israel. We, we, this isn't really our fight. We are pro-American, but also pro-inclusivity. Like, yeah. it, and I get that, but it's, it's, even that is complicated because their story doesn't start as far back. Yeah, and I yeah. money myself of that. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Like I'm yeah. the first person in my family didn't live in New York, dude. Yeah, yeah. It's been it's, it's been a small yeah. a small pocket of yeah. where people went when they moved here. Yeah. So uh, so again, just keeping all of these ideas in mind is is important when you are uh, uh, building something. I think that's yeah. the thing. Like, I don't know that this is as important for every single line of work, but when you mm -hmm. are a creative person or an entrepreneurial person, you're always interacting with society. And you you have to pay attention to the kind of music of society to know how to play your role. Totally, I love that. That's a that's beautifully put. Um, so taking a step back to like your own foray into entrepreneurship, how did like I, I don't know the answer to this. We've never talked yeah. about this, even though we've been friends for ages. But um, 
where does the entrepreneurial like fire come from, Matt? Like, was your dad, your dad's not an entrepreneur, right? Your mom's a no, teacher. No, he's not. No, no. But my grandpa was an entrepreneur, my okay. maternal okay. grandfather. So he was very um, encouraging of it and had, again, sort of, I mean, honestly, it isn't, it, it is a ethnic and immigrant view. I will be honest. Yeah. It is, which is like, you can't get, you know, when he was going to college, there were Jewish quotas and only certain people would hire you. So his view was make your own thing. I mean, I, I don't know how intensely that shaped him in his later years, but like pretty empirically, those are the conversations we'd have about his youth. Yeah. It was like, well, the options are limited to so build a business. Yeah. And this is true for, for so many, many millions of Americans or folks who have moved to America. I mean, it's yep. like, that's the old story. Um, my cousin went down to find in, in deep Borough Park, Brooklyn, the electronics shop that some cousins of ours apparently started like 60, 70 years ago. It's still uh -huh. there. You know? wow. Like th that's the stuff that you, so build a business was, was yeah. part of the, the family culture. I will also say, and this is what we, yeah, we haven't talked about it, even though we knew each other through this, that you and I each graduated from the same school in mm -hmm. a recession. Yeah. And so shit was real. It was real. Exactly. And so for me putting together friends and family round of financing to see how far an app could go mm -hmm. was actually easier than getting a job. Yeah. Like that. I mean, every job at the turn of the 2010s was an internship. Yeah. Period. Unpaid. At least exactly. At least in the information economy, mm -hmm. I was interested in getting, and I want to be very clear on that. But the other thing I want to be clear on is like, I had a bachelor degree from New York university that should have meant something. Yeah. So, so it's not, you know, so that that's, what's so complicated. So in truth, yes, I could have gone, you know, I, there were, there were jobs available to me, I suppose, in the County I grew up in, mm -hmm. but I, they weren't, they were like the jobs I had in the summer through yeah. high school. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah. So it didn't feel like I was advancing. So that was, that was part of it was the belief that I wanted to build a product uh, yeah. A media product was how we started, and I wanted to own something. That was another thing that was important to me from from the family sort of lore. Mm -hmm. But the other, but the third piece, I think, was that the options were very limited. And then, and I'm really interested in your view on this too. And then, what became sort of fun for me was after my business didn't work out, and I stayed in the entrepreneurial community in New York because really, what I found was that I loved the people. Yeah. Like I loved a community of like-minded people. But to yeah. me, that's why I get up and do anything. Yeah. Um, and there were certain organizations that filled a role for us, like that civic organizations used to, or mm -hmm. that churches used to, or that, you know, like like in American life, a lot of institutions have frayed, right? So we started the conversation with so when a lot so like when we work fell, I was in EIR there. And, and, and that was a very traumatic event for a lot of people. I knew a lot of people, I mean, thousands of people, many of whom I knew were fired. Yeah. Uh, that sucked, not because we all thought WeWork was the be all end all company, but because that was a social gathering place. Like yeah. Yeah. that served a purpose in life and in modern American life. And, and what people didn't understand about the WeWork failing, and I, I don't know that I've said this publicly yet, but like a lot of the people that lost their jobs were people who were first or second generation Americans who worked in the individual offices yeah. and were commuting back to live with their parents in Queens, Brooklyn, Staten Island, hoping to get a foothold in the technology economy. Yeah. Like, like it wasn't some rich guy with a scheme. It yeah. was a community of people who worked for tragically a rich guy with a scheme. Yeah. And so, so it sucks, you know, Yeah, yeah. but like the people I knew were people who manned the front desks and held the events 
and they were black, brown, man, woman, non-binary. There was a sense that it, it was it was a much more heterogeneous community than has been reflected in the media, but because the media is about like individual founders, they tend yeah. to talk about a certain kind of person. Um, and so I think that the, for, the, for me, the people and the kind of new civic structure that was born of like product people, entrepreneurial people, that, that meant a lot to me. And that's why I never really ended up going back into grad school and why I sort of stayed in the hustle. Yeah. Because I liked the people. I liked totally. having a community. And a lot of them are like still my friends. Like when I, you know, like when I look over, like during this year, my God, you kind of learn who your friends are. Yeah. Who's going to stay in touch with you when the world shut down. And a lot of them are people I met in like my early and mid twenties, Yeah, which is, I think, not that common. Um, you know, that weird period of time where you're like not yet a parent and not a student it's hard to make friends. And yet all of my friends sort of came from that community. So mm-hmm. that's been really, I don't know that I would have given that answer even like six months ago, but that, that's a, a real reason why I tried to be a better entrepreneur and a better executive rather than like, you know, say, oh, okay, this isn't for me or uh, I'm not a developer, so I can't be in tech or any yeah. of those things that like me out. I didn't listen to them yeah. because instead I, I just so enjoyed the people. Yeah. I, that, that so much of that resonates with me, two things there, um, particular, you know, talking about your grandfather's story, right? I think the last year has shown so many people that your employer doesn't have your back or, you know, that, um, the way we have been doing things is unsustainable from a professional standpoint. Right. And so what are your options? do you just switch jobs, but then it ends up being more of the same stuff or do you go out on your own and start your own business? And I find that the conversation is, is really centered around the latter a lot. It's particular um, with, with uh, women of color. Um, But the other thing that really resonates with me there is like, that's why I work with who I do because I like them and I like their vibe. And I like people that, you know, have a vision and have aspirations and are willing to bet on themselves to make that happen, right? Like those are my people. And so for me, it's it's super fulfilling to work in that space and move in that space because, you know, they, they inspire me in turn. Um, and, and it's really exciting for me to be able to help them achieve whatever that is that they're trying to achieve in my own small way, you know? Yeah, and, and I think in your own, I think you're being modest in your own small way like you're helping to you're helping to tell a bigger story of success that i think is overdue and overlooked maybe that's what i'll try to say and the reason i keep saying story is for the last four years i've been an entrepreneur again but i'm working with really big institutions to tell their stories like i'm not you know this isn't a venture-backed business my business is lft media we don't even have a company website i have a personal website because the work we make is so often internally facing it's for Mm -hmm corporate executive teams. Mm. Um, And a lot of it is around like, how do you get one of these big institutions to reach out to the ecosystem? How do you change behavior? You know, a lot of the stuff we talked about, but so much of that comes from the power of a good narrative. And I think you mentioned 2016 was so hard. My God, like I collapsed, uh, (laughs) you know, and, and I think one of the reasons was like, we felt the narrative had been snatched away. Yeah. And, and I remember that morning, going into a meeting at, 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 I was working at Barclays, so it was Barclays headquarters. Um, but Barclays headquarters, I don't know if you know this, it, it is in the old Lehman Brothers building. Oh. So it felt like I was walking into like a sort of tribute to the collapse of our generation's hope. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was like, yeah. 
like it was like it was so many like very vivid things and you know like i was i made like yeah so that was so depressing and then i met a friend of mine across the street just to like mourn you know i couldn't even go back to the office yeah and this giant like sort of cavalcade of cars came flying on 7th avenue and it was trump he was like oh, celebrating God. And, and i felt like okay this is like this was so in my face you know what i mean yeah. like narrative like i get it like now you're making me eat the dirt like there i am the lehman brothers building let me just there, lay there, down exactly and and i think about that a lot as like it was a narrative problem like we yeah. didn't have a, like the people who wanted a very different kind of and a more innovative um america more innovative sort of business community within america like it, it, we had something snatched away from us so i think that th that's sort of what bore out my belief in narrative um whether that's doing this um, really fun oral history of quantum computing i just did with ibm which is like you know i got to also learn a lot about quantum computing in the course of making that which is really fun or yeah. helping them tell their, their blockchain story or uh even the stories we tell at the intensive i facilitate around you know around innovation um what you said made me think that narrative is key in so many different kinds mm -hmm. of jobs um and i think one of the things that's cool about this podcast as well as working with clients is you're helping folks reclaim their stories or, or maybe claim yeah. them for the first time yeah. the story of my business is the story of my life i mean yeah. that just is how it is and yeah. why i'm doing this is because of the work that went into me right as you brought up you know previous generations so 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 it's worth uh yeah i mean don't i guess i guess what i'm saying is i think there's no good in saying like it's just the fun of it, it it's that there's a real power passion purpose behind uh the work that entrepreneurs like you were doing too you know totally totally <laughs> not that well, i want to not that i want to say it's not fun i get that yeah it's fun, right? no i, I get I it clear to anybody but it's to bigger than that it's bigger exactly. than that right and i think uh my personal opinion i wonder what your opinion is too is that a lot of entrepreneurs fail when they don't do it from that place right like when they just chase the thing that seems like oh this can make me some money um and then they're not willing to commit and stick with it um in the longer term and you know be just be more committed to the actual cause or the actual thing that they're trying to achieve yeah i don't uh that's a really great question i think that there's sort of two kinds of entrepreneurs uh there's for me in my experience there's two kinds of entrepreneurs some are the folks that are like born to make that thing work yeah and some who are born to learn from from their mistakes and i think that i i'm certainly i'm certainly more comfortable in the latter like i'm willing to change the business model and keep learning and yeah that's very important to me i've also again i can't hit this home enough i chose to start a business where i i live on client revenue and on advertising and all sorts mm -hmm. of things that come through my shows like i chose not to raise money for this business um but i think that there's a challenge in the way that we tell i'm going back to storytelling a challenge in the way we tell the story about the first camp the folks who are like born to do something mm -hmm. so it makes everything seem easy or like oh, destiny yeah. or you know what i'm saying like like when we talk about jeff bezos now we talk about him like he's so rich and is there, is there something sort of wrong with that um, but for a long time, the narrative was just, this is the smartest guy in the world yeah. and look at what he figured out. But that's never true. It's an, an enormous amount of luck and opportunity and advantage um, that goes into it. I, I, I'll tell a story that might be relevant for your audience. I think about a lot. I have, I have um, advisors I work with, friends I work with, and, and a, a very dear friend of mine who's a, a founder, a, a female founder of color. Um, we were, she's in the crypto space. And we were talking about 
like the just the number of wild valuations around crypto companies yeah. and the sort of gold rush that's happening that I guess I'll say the non-fiat cold gold rush that's happening. <laughs> uh, but to a T, the founders are, are white men. Yeah. And so it feels like even when we're talking about the front, you know, the, 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 the frontier, right? Like the next great wave, we're not talking about or including everybody. Yeah. Like, like I was in, in this experience, I'm trying to, you know, keep some of the information confidential, but it was yeah. an interesting example of like, even now, even as you said, a year after all these discussions, it, it, you know, a brilliant founder I know is getting the meetings, but she might get them on the ninth, 10th, 11th try yeah. that yeah. a white guy would get on the first half try. Mm -hmm. And it's really important to take all that into consideration when you're also thinking about the folks who you think are predestined mm -hmm. because they're not. There are opportunities available to them. And, you know, I think previously we thought, well, they're just savvy. Like, yeah. so what? They had an opportunity. They took it. Yeah. You would too if you could. But I think the if you could thing is really important because so many can't. I, I just, I, I've never been able to really wrap my head around that piece of it. That it's yeah. not, you know, that Mark Zuckerberg, sure, he's, he's really smart. I'm not saying he's not smart, but like he is lucky. Yeah, and you and, it's, and you are you are naive if you think that has nothing to do with it, and you are naive to think that the folks who went to really great private schools, really great private colleges, graduated debt free and had every opportunity in the world are not the people who are in charge. I have had a life and career where I've had to balance a lot of different stakeholders from a lot of different walks of life. And I'll tell you that the people who I know, whether from those schools, like because I went to those schools too, yeah. that that that. Is where the advantage always happens. The advantage is always, uh, I'll, I'll put it maybe more kindly because I don't want to knock every entrepreneur that is sort of famous. I think there's a reason that the the profile of entrepreneur we've become so familiar with, especially in tech, looks and sounds the way it does. Yeah. And there's a power structure and incentive structure to keep it that way. That that's maybe what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want any of your listeners or anybody to think that someone was predestined to have this experience or that yeah. this was this was always meant to be and they're just smarter than me it's always about the opportunities and the advantages and there is a class and a structure particularly in the united states that uh is yeah it's just set up better for that i mean just it's, that's the truth and, yeah. and, it's, and it's worth combating or at least understanding before deciding that uh you know that that, that these are all the most brilliant people in the world because some of them are and some of them really and truly aren't. I don't know how to say it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. really, I mean, I've been in the room with these people, like some of them just are, you know, excuse my language, but really fucking lucky. Yeah. And to be able to drop out of Harvard as two of the richest men in the world are, is itself such a wild act of privilege that it's yeah. worth considering, you know, what that means uh, before you start comparing yourself again or, or, or sort of measuring your own growth against theirs. A hundred percent. I am. I, I couldn't agree more. I'm such a big um, proponent of not comparing your own personal story to another's in a way that's going to make you feel bad about yourself. Right. Um, yeah. Because no two people have the same experience. No two people have the same like lived experience and professional experience and network and opportunities and all of those things. And to do to compare them like they're apples to apples really does yourself a disservice. Um, I was listening to, speaking of like dropping out of Ivy League schools, I was listening to a podcast the other day with, it was an interview with the CEO of him and hers, which is like some telehealth company, mm -hmm. went IPO this year. Do you know it? Um, yeah. 
And the guy, the CEO is like 31, which is crazy, right? Yeah. Um, to be the CEO of a publicly traded company so young. But he also dropped out of Wharton because he's like, I was just too busy founding businesses. And I didn't think I would see any value from school. And I'm like, if I had even tried that, I wasn't particularly entrepreneurial minded in college. I wanted to save the world and work at an NGO. But if I had been and I had pulled that with my parents, they would have they would have set me straight real quick. Like you have no other, that's not an option for you. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's not, that's not something you can just do like that and think that it's going to go well for you. And also to be honest, I mean, this is like, again, full disclosure and and I've known each other forever. um, You didn't have that kind of access. Like that's the other, like that's the, I just, for me, I keep coming back to that in all these conversations. Like that's the real fight. It's, it's really hard to do these things when you don't have access. I, I, And again, I've been in lots of different worlds and sometimes the access is right at your fingertips and sometimes it really isn't. Like sometimes yeah. I know that the reason that, that senior banker likes me is I kind of remind him of him Yeah. based on entirely superficial things. Yeah. I'm a white guy with glasses, so is he, and no one else in the room might be at a given time. And so he looks at me as someone that he could talk to. And that's, yeah. by the way, that's never, ever a good idea. No one ever <laughs> wants to talk to you because you look like them in any <laughs> walk of life or anything. It's like what crazy people think. Uh, but the other the other piece of it is is that there's a, uh, like a solidarity that that's forced by th- those who have advantages, right? Like that's what alumni groups are for. Mm-hmm. That's what, um, like even I think about people who who don't have time to go to an after work drink, as so many friends of mine and I joke, like it's a really good thing that our startups left us vaguely unemployed so we could save money during the day to go to a happy hour at night. Yeah, because that's where deals were actually getting done and people were actually meeting each other and getting hired. Like yeah. that's a I hate the phrase life hack, but that's a life hack I had to learn. That if I had children in my mid twenties, for example, I couldn't have done. Yeah, like that. You know, it's, so yeah. you just need to. I think people need to be aware of what's available and what's an opportunity. And, and it's really exciting that particularly in the innovation space, we're seeing all these different funding opportunities coming for previously disenfranchised founders or previously underserved founders. But but I think there's, a, again, this like much larger conversation, which is the role of institutions in all of these, because even the money comes from a system where certain people benefit and others didn't. So it's great yeah. that you know, as you and I are recording this, the, the big news about Mackenzie Scott giving away all that money yesterday mm-hmm. um, was was exciting. Uh, conversely, that that money was made by sort of decimating industry after industry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, like on route to, to, to minting the world's yeah. first quasi-trillionaire who's about to go to space next month. Like, again, not, I don't even know if it's a... I don't, I, I'm of two minds on that, which is one is I don't know if it's a moral judgment that I can pass. And the other is any language I have for it sounds like I'm judging someone morally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, like on the one yeah. hand, I don't know that that's the way I look at it. You know, good for him, you know, right? Yeah. Mazel tov, go make money. And the other part of me is like pretty weird that one person can make all that money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but going back to what you said before, like more than one thing can be true at the same time. Right. Exactly. And so exactly. it is very weird that somebody could be as wealthy as he is. And he's probably a really smart dude and he's lucky. And also someone having that much money is, is just really scary. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, and I think, I guess yeah. I'm interested in this view and your clients, like, are you talking about, 
I mean, I feel like the conversation is, is deeper now than, than nest egg. It's, it's generational wealth, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So how important is it um, for entrepreneurial clients of yours to think about that versus thinking about the day-to-day of the business? Because for the last, for my entire startup life in different journeys, it's been like focus on the business and everything else will work out. Focus yeah. on the business, focus on the business. But that's hard when you're building a life. Yeah, yeah. What are what are those conversations like for you? And what is the balance you're striking with entrepreneurial clients of yours? Yeah. So that's a really good question. I think most of my clients are very focused on generational wealth because they don't come from much wealth. Right. And so that is, always, that's the underpinning of everything. And I think a lot of them see that entrepreneurship when done well can really be a catalyst towards building generational wealth. Right. But, but I'm always reminding them that, you know, the why and the motivator beneath that generational wealth is, is the dog and the rest of it is the tail. Right. So, you know, for me, it's, I'll, I'll talk personally, right. Um, you know, I have a couple aspirations that are really bigger than me. So for one, I want my girls, you know, I want to write a check for my girls to go to wherever the hell they want to go to school and not have them worry about it. And if they decide in sophomore year, you know, going back to what I talked about, they decide in sophomore year that they want to drop out of Wharton or wherever, then you know what, go do your thing. And here's a check, right? Um, Go start your business. I want to be able to do that and to give the further future generations the opportunity to really soar unencumbered. The other is that, you know, I also, you know, one of my my new aspirations that I have that I'm hoping to complete by the end of the year is, you know, I want to buy some land in Puerto Rico and I want to build a home there for us. And I really want to buy prime like virgin land and save it from all these real estate developers that are buying up all the nice land in Puerto Rico and no Puerto Ricans can buy anything or can barely have lights. You know what I mean? Um those are two real motivators. And so then I back into, all right, how do I make my business work and have the impact that I want it to have in terms of my, my professional mission and also fulfill that deeper why that I have for me as an individual. Right. Um, And I think when we do the reverse is when we get into trouble, right? Because we burn out, we take excess risks or, you know, we come in too hot and over leverage ourselves. And, um, and then we end up failing as a, as an entrepreneurial venture. And it's because, you know, we're just trying to chase the thrill or focus on that. Um, I will say there is a lot of no, it is a really different experience. I, I talked to a, um, somebody who started a similar um, investment firm that I did around the same time. And he's, you know, nice dude, you know, similar age, white dude comes from money. And he said to me, he's like, I, I never really thought about my finances at all while I was scaling this thing, right? Like, it's not something that I considered. Whereas for me, that was like top of mind. I'm like, I got to make this work. And not because I was like, you know, didn't have any money, but more because I took the risk and I left a really well-paying job to start Mm -hmm. this thing. And I got kids that I'm trying to, you know, connect to this bigger why. And um, it is a level of pressure that I think we have to bring down and also tie to that larger uh, mission so that it's less urgent and stressful and anxiety inducing. I think that once you understand the role of these institutions to bring it back to the beginning of this conversation, whether it's banks or the world's biggest funds, the world's largest companies, you can't unsee 
their role in society. Yeah. And I think that the same folks who are saying, I never really thought about my finances are not thinking about the institutional problems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But by virtue of like the way our society is set up, uh, your story, the story of so many of your clients, which is why I know they, they love working with you, um, is a story where being aware of the systemic challenges are, are like, they're baked in. Yeah. They're baked in. Because it's a lived experience. Exactly. And also just very practically, like it's much harder for you to go fishing for a boy's weekend with the yeah. CEO of a Fortune 50 company. Like, like that just is the, right? And yeah. That just is the problem. Like they First off, that sounds like torture. <laughs> just saying right. yeah right so for a million reasons you wouldn't want to do it um but but that's like i think that's such a big part of it you know um is just being aware of where the systemic challenges are now i've grown up in in sort of in a very early 21st century definition of american privilege um which i've learned means that i i was born to a family that allowed me to have sort of any opportunity I wanted, take any opportunity I wanted, but also, oh my God, there are so many more rich people out there than I thought. Like I'm like, like that was, that's, that's my experience of the, the American upper middle yeah. class was I thought I had everything until I saw people who had everything, everything. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, and I've never, and this sounds so strange. You brought up a moment ago, um, that when you were in college, you were thinking, well, I want to go to an NGO and, 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 and change the world. I don't think that what you're doing now doesn't change the world. Oh no, like it totally my, does. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, my, my belief is that you can leverage business to change the world. And so anytime I have a moment where I also measure myself against someone else's success, like why didn't I, you know, buy a bunch of ether in 2014 when I was first talking to folks about it? Why didn't I bubble, you know, why didn't I invest in that company that came to our accelerator? It's now valued at half a billion dollars. I I personally feel like the road that I've taken, and it's hard to really acknowledge this was one that led me to a life where I get to teach and write and produce and do things that are more meaningful to me. Mm -hmm. And the value is I still get to pay myself well, I still get to do stuff. And like, I, those opportunities are still in front of me, yeah. but I had to do things that were more um, meaningful. And that means you're leaving money on the table sometimes, but you're also carving out the path you want. And I think mm -hmm. that's the real definition of innovation. Like even as I, as I say it, um, but just to be clear, in this world and recognizing institutional challenges, I, I think that is the way you you make the change. I, I don't think it's you build one really successful company and then have a lot of money to become a philanthropist. That, that model, frankly, has not worked. Yeah. You, it look it turns out that you can neither buy a presidential election nor enough love in the world. So what the hell is that money yeah. going towards? Right? Like we've seen yeah. the last twenty years of the, the the sort of philanthropist as the answer right way of thinking and, and it just it was wrong they gave us the wrong yeah, answer i agree um so so i'm uh i'm excited thank you for for having me on and for yeah. talking to you but also i hope that what listeners get out of a conversation like this that jumped around to a lot of points is innovation should be synonymous with growth success and on some level happiness which i don't hear enough i think that's mm -hmm. a weird missing piece of the definition the other is for the folks who are aware of institutional challenges like tell others, make, make others aware of these things. Like that friend of yours that just never thought about his finances. Mm -hmm. It's pretty weird when he's managing finances. I yeah. think that's kind of a scary thing. You want to, you're going to want to have your financial manager think about money. And I yeah. think the third is, um, you know, tell the right story, your story, your client's story, your business's story, make sure you know uh, what story you're telling and, and to whom.
Okay, all the gems. You just dropped some some serious goals there. I try, um, I tried to I tried to do like the summary you could like mic drop on LinkedIn or something. <laughs> yeah. you do something because I always I'm always told I ramble and I'm like okay maybe if I just boom 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 sort of PowerPoint that shit <laughs> oh my right God. at the end. There. That is so great, um, Matt. Thank you so much for joining us. I feel like there's such a wealth of wisdom in this time together and um i know i got a lot out of it and i'm sure those who are tuning in do too so thank you so much for joining us thank you for having me Anna. thank you everybody that's a wrap thank you so much for listening to the first gen wellness podcast i hope you've left this feeling inspired motivated and with some lessons you can take and bring into your own life let's shake some shit up